Okay, the second Grand Tour of the year is in the books. It was an amazing race, but this year we don't have to deal with the post-Tour de France hangover because we have the Tour de France femme presented by Zwift to uh, get us through this next week or so. Uh, we just wanted to take this episode and take a look back at those amazing three, three and a half weeks of racing and get a little bit of an insider fan perspective by including our producer, Mark Payne. So welcome Jens and Mark Payne to Bobby and Jens. I feel like I'm invading. <laughs> well, Mark, you know, our relationship started as you as our producer, but we've always kind of you know, had these like pre-production meetings, you know, 20 minutes before our guest comes on. And you have such an interesting perspective on the sport because, you know, Jens and I were there, been there, done that. But you just recently came into the sport. And I think I can go on the record and say that you're a super fan of cycling. What did you think of the Tour de France this year? Well, I mean... For, for those of people who haven't listened, I've, I've only been a fan of the sport realistically <clears throat> on the road since Mark Cavendish started racing. That's what got me in. So, you know, 2009 backwards. So my history extends that far. And in that time, that was the best Tour de France I've ever seen. Um, you know, from the crazy attacks that we were seeing for the GC, um, you know, the the wild stage in Denmark, the Grand Depart, probably the only Grand Depart that's got close to beating Yorkshire. That was incredible. From the start to finish, I loved every second. I couldn't agree more. Me too. I loved every second. It was exciting and thrilling, and I believe every day had at least one highlight. Cobblestones, you know, crosswinds, bridges, hills, nasty hills, even more nasty hills, or crashes, or whatever. It had it all, so I loved it. Jens, you had an interesting perspective because you were commentating each and every single day uh, as your as your day job. Do the stages kind of run together? Uh, do you remember? I mean, I, we want to go down and not only talk about Jonas Venigo's amazing win, but kind of recap every week. Because I, I really had to go back and oh, who won stage three? Who won stage four? Because it was just, it felt like it was an eon ago because every day was just an amazing like, this is the best stage ever of the Tour de France. And then the next stage would outdo that. And then, you know, our predictions for, for the race would be totally upended by Jubo Visma's tactics. What, what, it, what is it like for you as a commentator during, during the well, Tour de France? Since you do, like, uh, prepare your stage, you write, uh, you know, you had your notes down, how's the race going to be, what's a favorite, um, who won it yesterday. So you kind of, like, keep track on what happened. Um and uh, very early, basically on the first day already, priceless, the view on Wout van Aert's face when he sits in a hot seat after beating Pogacar, after he has beaten reigning world champion Filippo Ganna, and he goes, oh, Yves Lampert beat me. The, the look on his face when he showed the time, he like, really? Yves Lampert just beat me after I did beat Filippo Ganna? So that was my highlight of the first day already. The the pure <laughs> shock and horror in the face of Wolfram going, I'm second? Yves Lampert just beat me after I did beat the entire world elite of cycling. So that was a good start. That was a promising start. And Yves Lampert was a happy winner. Should we take a look at the bigger picture for, before we get into the like the week by week? Because... We came into this, and I know we were talking on text and, you know, when we were meeting before about how this was going to be an extension of that Tade Pogacar era. We thought he was going to run away with it. And we spoke about this a little earlier on. When he dropped Jonas Vingago on those short, punchy climbs in the early weeks of the race, I think we all thought he was going to be minutes ahead. What did you make of the fact that Jonas Vingago was able to come out on top? Well, for me, I mean, every single day, you've got to think about saving energy. And every single day I saw Tade expending an energy and not really getting that much out of it. And coming into the race without that much racing, I was, I kept asking myself like, man, this guy is either the extraterrestrial best rider of all time, or he's going to have to pay the bill sooner or later. 
I didn't see it coming the way that it came. But I mean, for me, as a fan of cycling, I, I, I don't think there's anybody that could have doubted his confidence, uh, Tade's confidence in that first week, that first 10 days up into the, the stage with the Telegraph Delibier and um, the, the final climb, the Granon, yep, I, I believe it was. Up until then, I mean, everything that was happening just seemed to kind of bounce off of him. You know, a lot of the other guys were having mechanicals, losing teammates to sickness, you know, crashes. And he was just floating through the Peloton. But yeah, I guess you have to pay the piper uh, sooner or later. And, and he definitely did on, on that, that hard stage with Telegraph, Olivia and Granon. I believe until 10 days into the race, I was just adamant. Yeah, Pukash is going to win. No problem at all. Okay, he lost a teammate. No worries. Mark Hirschi not in shape. No worries. He's still going to win. But in the end, I believe... Um, It was the start of the downfall, losing teammates with COVID and just don't have the numbers there to protect him or even for simple things like bringing him water bottles of food or I think he had to spend too much energy on other things than just focus on winning and that was the first step for him to actually not winning this year's tour. Yenzi, do you think that overconfidence played a part in uh, in Pogacar's you know, kind of collapse there on, on stage 11? Um, I believe, well, no, I think uh, it was more his young age <clears throat> or more of his young age. He probably, I mean, it's easy to talk for us in an air-conditioned uh, chair, you know, an air-conditioned room sitting in a chair, you know. Um, I think uh, he should have left the weaker opponent go away so he should have left on that day. He should have left Roglic out there because Roglic could not tread him. He was already far down because of the crash in the Couplestone stage, the stage to Arenberg. So Roglic could have not kept a high challenging speed for long. But if Roglic is a minute ahead and Pogacar sits behind with Jonas Wingegaard on his wheel, He blocks Wingegaard. Wingegaard cannot attack because his friend, captain and teammate is out there. Even though all three of them know it's not a good situation. It looks good on paper. Roglic is, yeah, I'm out there. I got a minute on Pogacar. But Pogacar would be the only one winning in that situation. Being cold-blooded, leaving the weaker guy out there to run himself into the ground. And your potentially stronger opponent is tactically blocked on your wheel. And then he could slow the whole race down enough for his teammates to come back. Then he would have the strength and numbers again and the race would be shut down and he could have saved the day. I was going to say, the, the stage we're talking about is stage 11, right? Which is the stage that I think, if you weren't a fan of cycling before, <laughs> would have converted you. But I mean, my, my takeaway with that is, please don't teach Pogaccia how to race properly because... You know, that that's what made that a stage. The, the fact that he decided, you know, everyone knows you shouldn't attack a guy who's five minutes step back on GC or whatever Roglic was at that stage. But he went, I can see him. I reckon I can take him. You've got your whole team. You've got Wout Van Aert in the form of his life. You've got, you know, a whole team of mountain domestics, Sepkus, amazing rider. No, I'm just going to go anyway. And if you can't stay with me, that's fine. And, and I don't think I really thought he was going to crack But when he did, I kind of was like, well, it, it actually made me like him more because as a, you know, there was always this this doubt in my mind that, like you were saying, Bobby, that he might be superhuman and really superhuman's boring. But it was the moment we saw him be mortal. And I was like, oh, great. So he attacks like this and he can crack. Brilliant. And then, you know, later on, we saw him attacking every stage, He even attacked on the Champs-Élysées, you know, like just love that about him. So... Yeah, I mean, it might have been a stupid move tactically, but it was brilliant to watch as a fan. And I guess brings me back to um, what I said about the, the team. I believe he didn't really crack uh, physically. I think he didn't have enough liquids and he didn't have enough food because there was no teammate there, no car there, because the split, the tele, the peloton was split in a million pieces. So there were no team cars with water bottles or with any new, uh, you know, energy bars or power gels. So I think he did actually run into a slight hunger flat or a slight um, dehydration. And that's why he was just missing that last little bit. And once 
you lose the wheel. Yeah, you just fall apart. You know, then it's you just in your mind, you just crack and you fall apart. That's why he lost so mm. much time. Can I ask you a question, Bobby? Because you've obviously coached, you know, great generational riders. You coached Chris Froome. What would you do with your, with uh, Tade in this situation? What would be your advice? What would you say to make sure that he wins the Tour de France in 2023? I think he just has to to take it back a notch. And this may be that 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 moment where he realizes that, you know, he has to cross the T's and dot the I's and, you know, just showing up at the race and putting on, you know, number one, which he will not put on next year is, is going to be, um, a challenge to him. But I mean, he's so young. He has, he has so much room for improvement, which is freaking scary in, in my opinion. But I mean, we got to go back here. We are talking about Tade, 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 Jonas Venigo. I mean, when yeah. he took the jersey, I'm like, okay, homie, you let's let's see how you can deal with those post race um, interviews with you know the extra pressure of leading a race like this. And honestly, I was just waiting for him to crack, and yeah. the guy never cracked. So instead of talking about Tade Pogachar, um, Jonas Venigo, Jens, you know what it's like. You've had the yellow jersey. I never got to touch the yellow jersey. I added it up and I was second in the Tour de France for over 20 stages and never got to touch the jersey. But I remember when you took the jersey in 2001 and it was a great stage. Um, you had to go to the press conference and then the next day you could barely get out of bed. Um, I don't know what it was, uh, food poisoning or, or something like that. And, and you were struggling. And, you know, Hey, you had the yellow jersey for a day, no problem. But here he is expected to keep the jersey the rest of the event. And yes, he had the dominant team and he had Wout Van Aert at his side. There's no doubt about it. But I was blown away that he was able to stay so calm, cool, and collected with everybody throwing everything but the kitchen sink at him, including Pogachar on multiple occasions. So what... What is it that Jonas has mentally? Is it is it the, knowing that he has the strongest team? Because we didn't even know this guy until last year. I mean, and yeah, he did get second in the Tour de France. We can't forget that. But how do you learn to take the yellow and deal with all that extra pressure and then be able to ride your bike and absorb all these attacks and tactical battles that are, you know, came at him left, right, and center during almost every single stage. Well, I guess um, steep learning learning curve. Curve. He was um, uh, suddenly a spare leader last year after Roglic crashed out. So that's when he finished second. So he was close to yellow and he could feel how it is to race up there, to be constant, you know, at that level for three weeks. So he, he could learn there and... Um, he's different personality, you know. He um, he got his fiance. He got a little um, a child, a daughter. He worked at a fish packing plant as a younger man, so he knows what a fucking hard life is, and he knows where he doesn't want to go back to. So he knows, hey, I gotta focus, I gotta stay, and I believe he is just more. He's not a guy that goes for the flashy diamond diamond earpiece or for the flashy car. He's a down-to-earth, normal, analytical person. And he goes, look, just by pure logic, I'm not here by coincidence. I'm here because I'm good. And there's no reason why I shouldn't be good tomorrow and the day after because I trained for this. Of course, it helps to have the strongest, most balanced team in the world around you. And I guess they, they just took good care of him. Well, you know, everybody knows the overall result, but I, I'd be curious to hear both from you and you and Mark about like the week by week kind of highlights, because these stages did kind of blend together. But like week number one, with that start up in Denmark, uh, so much was anticipated. I mean, we on our last show, I said... I didn't think that there'd be a real true sprinter stage until stage 15. But yeah, they had a real sprint, sprint stage on stage two and, and three. 
Um, what were your main takeaways from that that first week? For me, it was Nielsen Paulus, like being so close to the yellow jersey as an American and having him coming on to the podcast the, a couple days before he left for, for Denmark. Um, I, I was really pushing for him. But man, there's one thing about the yellow jersey. It seems to pick and choose um, the, the, the wearer of that jersey. And those, what, four seconds that he needed, um, there was a million different ways that he could have gotten it, but he never got it. It may have been, it may as well have been four minutes or 40 minutes, right? But man, like that was my kind of takeaway from, from that first week. I mean, there was some amazing racing. What were some of your guys' highlights from, from week number one? I mean, yeah, Nielsen Palace is a great one because I, I like you. <laughs> I, I was listening to the, the episode go out, um, the day we, after we recorded it and just thinking, oh, he seems like such a nice guy. And that's often how I take away from when we do these recordings. <laughs> it's like, oh, these guys are really, you know, you root for the guys that are after, you know, we've had them on. And yeah, I just I just really desperately wanted him to get that four seconds and it just never seemed to happen. He had two different opportunities to get it on two different days. And the other thing was, was Magnus Court in Denmark, basically <laughs> riding like the king of Denmark. There was a point, I, I, it's a moment I've never seen he went up a KOM, uh, sorry, Cat 4 worth one point. And he got the got that. And that meant that he was going to be in polka dots the next day. And he crossed the line with his hands in the air. And there was like a stadium like roar as he went through. And I was like, man, that must be the greatest feeling on earth. And he just looked absolutely elated. And he, he rode back to the peloton you know, after he'd finished with a grin like a Cheshire cat on his face. And I was like, oh. That was amazing. And there was moments like that all the way through Denmark. Just what an incredible atmosphere. They really bought the crowd. Jonas Wingergaard had tears in his eyes when he heard the roar at the team uh, presentation. Uh, it, it was spectacular. Mats Pedersen, um, we had him on the podcast before. I said, look, I know that cycling is popular in, in Denmark, but it feels like half of the country was on the side of the road for us. And another 100,000 are just here in Paris, just for us, for Jonas, but for us. It was uh, pretty impressive. One thing I noticed, a lot of discipline. In Denmark, not one single spectator on the road, not one dog on the road, nothing. Absolutely safe. The spectators were absolutely awesome. And uh, my take of the first week is the peloton finally gotten smart. Nobody wants to go on a break on a sprint a day anymore. They go, nah, I don't even want to waste their energy. So Magnus Court was three days in a row in a solo breakaway. One time he was <laughs> with another guy. They said, nah, I don't believe in this. I go back to the peloton. So the peloton finally gotten smart and go, nah, nah, it's not going to happen. So we might as well save energy. And uh, they kept their teams together and they played the safe card for the first week. What, one other thing that really stuck out to me that first week was, you know, obviously our our very favorite rider, Mark Cavendish, wasn't selected to do the tour. And um, Patrick Lefebvre uh, took a lot of heat, right? Mm -hmm. I, I was kind of torn. And then they win stage number one and stage number two. And I'm starting to think, man, Patrick Lefebvre is just, you know, a, a fortune teller, right? <laughs> And then, you know, the dynamic of Gronewagen winning and, you know, the, the clash that he had in that terrible clash with uh, Fabio Jakobsen. With, with Fabio Jakobsen. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to remember everyone's names. But like that was that was like so amazing. I mean, he must have just felt on on top of the world. But yeah, that, that the first week, you know, you're like, how can it get better? <laughs> you know, and then and then it just every stage just was even better and better and better. So moving on to this, on to, to week two. Um, yes. The, the real takeaway for me was that descent, uh, of Tom Pidcock, you know, he, the way that he was going down those descents was probably even better than the Fabian Conchalera descent. Uh, I think that was back in 2010, Uh, that I used to make, you know, riders watch, you know, in order to learn how to go down a descent right. But uh, him winning on Alpe d'Huez after that stage, just absolutely bossing that that breakaway, getting up to that breakaway on the descent and shredding that breakaway from so far out. I mean, 
I remember riding Alpe d'Huez, and I've ridden it quite a few times uh, online on the Zwift platform. There is no way, even if I was doing a Zwift event, that I would launch from 10 or 11K out. And, and he did. And so that, for me, was like the, the major, major takeaway. What about you, Mark? Well, I, I think I told you this off air, but I, I showed, I was talking to a friend who had never seen cycling, never watched it as a fan, never really been interested. And he said, what is your favorite sport? Is it cycling? I said, at the Tour de France, you can't beat anything. It's the greatest spectacle on the planet, of course. And he said, give me one, th- one reason why I should be interested. And I sent him the, the little one minute highlight clip of Tom Pidcock's descent. And he came back to me a week later and said he'd watched five stages and he was he was hooked. And that's that's what that did. That that was something that is really palatable and understandable for someone that's never followed the sport to see someone flying down a mountain and looking like, oh, you know, five or six times that like they're definitely not going to make the corner, overtaking guys around the outside. Like that, that bit where he goes down and overtakes around the outside is like that bit in Cancellara's descent where he just looks like he's going to hit the medical car and somehow makes it round. It's like wizardry. That that was unbelievable. And yeah, I, I I thought he'd gone too early. I just was fully expecting him. I was I thought he'd done everything right. And I said, oh, he's, he's worked so hard in this group. I really hope he just waits and lets someone else do the work up the climb. 11K out, like you say, he's off the front on his own. And I just fully expected him to get caught, but he just rode clean away. The guy can do everything. Incredible. And on the way he went down or on the downhill, because I was commentating, I swear he had fun. I swear he was almost smiling. And I believe in his mind, he thought, oh, this is easy. I still have 5 to 7% of security. You know, like extra, mm. I could go even further if I wanted to, but I don't have to. So even though it looked like warp speed for us, you know, he was still probably in control of it. And talking Tom Pitcock, he finished uh, second in the Young Riders jersey. So more than once we had to talk if he gets his head around, should he try to be a contender once? But then again, he was 57 minutes behind the winner of the white jersey, Tadej Pogacar. So he was second in the Young Riders jersey, but almost an hour behind. So that's a long way to make up to become a podium contender. But the future will tell. The other real takeaway for me was seeing Matteo Jorgensen, who has also been on our, our podcast recently. I mean, the guy was just nonstop. Quinn Simmons, nonstop in these breakaways. It was like... I kind of was thinking to myself, especially when Magnus Court went on and and won his stage, I was like, don't these guys know that this is a three-week race and not a week race or a two-week race? But man, I, I got to give it to them. They, they were laying it on the line and it was amazing. You know how hard, well, Jens, you actually were the master of the breakaway, so you could get into breakaways uh, a volonté, as we, we say in French, like anytime you want. But like to see these guys, these same guys, especially these young American guys getting into these breakaways and, you know, vying for stage wins. It was it was so awesome to see. It's been so long since we've seen like the the seven Americans make an impact to the race. And, you know, we had one guy that uh, had to leave pretty early. But like Mateo and and um, Quinn Simmons really took up the slack there. Quinn Simmons was just relentless in the breaks, even though on stage where you go, oh, I don't know if that's a stage for you, pal. Bang, he's out there, just not giving up. It was great to see. Another a little happy ending story was stage nine, Bob Youngles. You know, we had him on a podcast how he said, oh, yeah, I'm fighting to come back. I had this uh, operation on my artery and back problems and this and it's not perfect. And he wins the stage. What a happy, happy end. What a comeback for him. And it was an impressive win. You know, it was a tough stage. It was one of these hot days again. He was out there early. He could feel Thibaut Pino chasing from behind. And he was just like calculating, if I finish on top of the climb with 10 or 20 seconds to Thibaut Pino, I can gain another minute on the downhill, on the flats towards the finish line. So that was another good win. I was just going to say on Bob Youngles, the, the other thing that blew my mind was not only did he win the stage, but he was 
in and around top 10 on GC when like that was his second best performance ever. I think he finished 12th and there was a time where he was sort of fifth or sixth. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I thought this Bob Youngles had, had gone. I thought he was just now like a classics hilly one day race, but like he's only re- recently recovered from surgery. Like you say, maybe he's got that back in his future. Do you reckon it's possible? Let me check. Yeah. He finished 12th. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, everything's possible once you get your confidence and your health back. I mean, that, that was his major thing. And I remember him coming on the pod and telling us how, how mentally difficult it was coming back from that sort of thing. But I don't know about you guys, but um, I'm quite emotional because maybe it was because we know how much a stage win means to, to everyone. We, we, through social media, through the internet, through watching all the races, we kind of think we know what's going on and you know a guy gets into the breakaway and you're like oh man it would be so great but each one of the stage winners was like I I almost had a little tear in my eye because they uh besides Wout I mean Wout wins and Tade (laughs) wins and and Venigo wins and you know everything's hunky-dory but like like Michael Matthews winning uh stage 14 on a climb in a breakaway with like climbing specialists, you got to think what's going through his head. I've never won a stage of the tour. I've been second so many times, you know, the team is depending on me. And for him to, to, to attack on that climb up to Mond, um, I'm sorry, I, I do get emotional because maybe I do pay attention to these rider stories. And I think that's one of the things that makes our sport so amazing is these guys are just normal young men. And they go through ups and downs, and it's put on the front page of papers. It's criticized by armchair quarterbacks. But that redemption story, you know, with Bob, with Michael, it's, I'm sorry, I, I, I get a little teary-eyed when I, when I see them coming across the line, because you know how much that means to them. I never got to experience that sensation. Jens, you did on multiple occasions. But man, oh man, um, this race the tour de france is is career changing life changing and to win a stage of the tour oh i mean i don't have that on my palmars uh one of the biggest regrets is is not experiencing that but seeing these guys come across the line and knowing what they've been through is what makes this sport so special that is so true and another emotional victory was hugo hull the canadian uh, some 20 years or whatever it is after Steve Bauer, the next Canadian win. And he did it for his um, brother who got killed on a training ride uh, by a truck driver. And he said, look, brother, even there back then, 10 years ago, I think he said, hey, brother, I'm going to win a stage in the tour. That was the dream of them two together to be together in the tour. Hugo Hohl, the Canadian from Israel Premier Tech. And... Finally, he, you know, he was second, I believe, in the stage before. And then he wins that stage. And, you know, it was just, I mean, I actually did have a tear in my eye after that. Look, I'm going to give that to my brother who got killed 10 years ago in a, in a car crash out on a training ride. So that was probably the most beautiful or emotional uh, or the personally most important win of all of them. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say, like you, you, the the two stories you just told, the you know, <laughs> two guys for very different reasons, very emotional feelings. I mean, both of them, uh, I didn't think we we're gonna win the stage. I thought, thought that you know, for different reasons. I thought Michael Matthews has got the best sprint out of the guys he's with. Why are you attacking on the climb? You're gonna beat them in the sprint, and then he he goes and does it, and and that was somehow even better than him winning a sprint. And then the next day, you say like Hugo, oh, you know, he's de- dedicated it to his brother Pierrick. What what I was thinking was about that, and he actually said that he he even at the point that he was at the head of the race, he wasn't supposed to win the stage. He was working for Michael Woods, who's behind him, and the whole time he's waiting for him to come flying past, and he doesn't. And you could see there was a bit in the final kilometer where he's obviously getting the call from the radio, and he, he sits up, and it it was like a gunshot like you could feel the emotion just suddenly appear on his face and as he crossed the line i was like oh god i i was nearly in tears myself watching it it's incredible mm-hmm. what a moment yeah for for me uh stage 17 and stage 18 you know the stages in the pyrenees there 
Um, the main takeaway for me was, you know, on stage 17, uh, Brandon McNulty was like a motorcycle. Like they had just lost uh, some of their teammates. Um, uh, Pogachari lost another one of his teammates. They looked like they were on the back foot. And and Sparg and and Brandon McNulty just absolutely bossed those last couple climbs, up to the point where McNulty was still on the front with 300 meters to go with that last like little little kicker finishing up there in uh, on top of the climb the paragoat or or whatever, and and right then and there I mean seeing an American that deep into the final and setting up his 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 team leader for for a victory was amazing. But the coolest thing about that was the next day, Sepp Kuss did the same thing for his leader. It was like, wait a second, these guys are vibing off each other. You know, Quinn and Matteo in the breakaways, you know, uh, Sepp and, and Brandon, like on the climbing stages. It just was like gold watching these guys do it. And I think when I think back to the way that these, this this current crop of Americans are going and dealt with the tour de France this year was Nielsen set the, the tone, right? Like I'm not scared. I'm going to attack. Then, then Mateo and Quinn, and then in the mountains, Sepp and, and Brendan, they were like, Hey, if you could do that, I can do that. If you could do that, I can do that. And sooner or later, you know, that's going to change. And from being in that domestique role into, you know, that leadership role. So that's, that was kind of like the, the, the precursor, that work that you know you have to put in before you take that next step up to to being um, a leader of a team. And it's going to be hard, right? Like Sepp is with Jonas and Brendan is with um, Tade. So, you know, it just makes me think, gosh, if these guys switch teams or if they got on the same team, what would it be like? But yeah, it was it was just unbelievable. But like the one thing that really sticks out I thought Wout would have been a la casa on the third week after the way that he raced the first and second week. Um, Jens, is he extraterrestrial? How how was he doing what he was doing in those mountain stages, jumping into the breakaways and then setting up his team for for overall victory? Well, I believe he is just the new Peter Sagan. You know, he's just the new younger version of Peter Sagan, Peter Sagan. could never do. What well, that he is did. true. That is true. I mean, green jersey, okay, but on the penultimate, on the last climb of in the Pyrenees, they pan away and you see the green true. jersey, the yellow jersey, and the white jersey in the front on an uphill mountain day. When have we ever seen that before? I mean, I'm sorry. All respect to Peter Sagan. He's an amazing rider. But he could never have done that. That's true. It would be like uh, we see Mark Cavendish driving up the Galibier with Bradley Wiggins in yellow jersey on his wheel. We go, ah, oh, look how good is Kev on the mountains. So um, <laughs> it was something extraordinary to see. But then again, going back into the first week, who would have ever thought the yellow jersey attacks all alone by himself and rides a solo of about 10 kilometers and wins the stage in yellow on a solo breakaway. So he, he just pushed the limits for bike riders. Like, there is no category for him. He's making his own category. He is his own hero or his own, you know, vision. And I believe we're going to wait another 30 years to see somebody else coming close to that. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from Bellenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you will receive our special 25% discount 
and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our Tour de France chat. I was going to say on on that note, you know, you've you've got someone that's completely revolutionizing the sport. We spoke about how Tadej Pogacar does things completely against the rule book. You know, there was Michael Matthews doing the opposite of what we all expected. Tom Pidcock did the wrong thing. Is this like a whole new way of, do, do you like see the, the sort of changing style? And do you think that people will work this out? Or do you think it's just going to be, instead, instead of using the tactics we're so familiar on long mountain stages where you, you know, you ride for a certain distance and then one by one, your domestics drop off. You know, is that gone or are we going to start seeing a new style of riding to combat? Well, for me, um, I think the playbook, the old school playbook has been ripped up. I mean, these kids are definitely racing like they have no fear, no worry about recovery. They're not looking at the race book, you know, one day, two days, a week down the road. They're just laying it all out on the road. And that doesn't quite make sense to my generation or the tactics that we think we would employ. But Mark, I mean, as a new fan of the sport, you are being spoiled, my friend. <laughs> and I don't know if it was, you know, the pandemic ever since that, you know, since 2020, like things are different. We got younger riders coming into the, into the world tour right away and, and winning grand tours. Um, you know, Bernal was there, Tade's there. Now Jonas is there. The tactics they just don't exist to people like myself. Like I'm sitting there going, what, what, what are they thinking? But man, as far as getting people excited about the sport of cycling and, and interested in it, the Tour de France did an amazing job, but you know, with, with the, with the parkour that they designed, but the riders made the race and certain riders really went above and beyond to make it exciting where you're just sitting there scratching your head saying what, what what's going on and then you know the master plan of jumbo getting the yellow and the green jersey in paris that we all thought was insane to even think of came through and you know what did they wind up having um six stage wins i believe with yep. what three yep. three different exactly. riders <sighs> It's it's unbelievable. But Mark, as a as a somewhat newbie in in the sport, um, the tactics that you've seen, especially since we've been working together on this podcast, and and you and I and Jens talk about it quite quite often. What what is your take on it? Do do you prefer that old way of you know the sky train setting the tempo, riding the threshold, and then just eventually guys you know selection from the back, or you know, do you do you like this new generation of throwing caution to the wind and just laying it on the line every day? Do you know what I love is that we, I mean, you, I, I like a combination of both. To be brutally honest, because that stage where we talked about with Pagacha, there wasn't very many in that group when he, that attack happened. There was only sort of seven riders. I love to watch the guys. You see, you slowly see the best of the best whittled away until you've got this tiny group, and then they attack. The dream is to get the best two guys on their best day racing with 40K to go and just seeing, like, I love to see that. Then there was a little bit of that on stage 18. You know, that, that's something we haven't even spoken about yet. You know, Pogacar has the, the, the crash, Vingago nearly goes down, they have the handshake. And then, you know, the pair of them take on the final mountain side by side. Just, oh, that, that's like heaven. I, that, that if you've never seen cycling before, you get to see two guys both nearly kill themselves on a descent, then get up and go, yeah, we'll have a handshake and then see whoever gets to the top quickest, you have the tour. Like, it's just insane. What other sport does that happen in? You don't get that in like, you know, football. They're like, someone has a bad day and they slip over and they go, do you want to stand up and we'll have a proper go at it for the next 10 minutes? It just doesn't happen. And that that was one of the highlights of, you know, racing forced up. I don't think I've seen a better moment in a in a Tour de France to say, A, what a brilliant moment to hand the torch over and B, what a wonderful sportsman Tade Pogacar is. Incredible. So I love, to answer your question, I love the way that they race now, but I can see the benefit of just seeing who the hardest guy is as well. Love it. Wow. It just tells me that, yeah, all these stages are blending together because I, I wrote that in my notes and, and took a mental picture of 
what Venigo did when when Pogachar crashed there. He was that's when I knew it's over. Because he was he waited for him and he was just like, No, 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 I'm not gonna win the race like this. I'm not gonna win the race because of a technicality. I'm gonna wait for you and and drop you anyway. I mean, right then and there, I was like, This this kid is grande class. This kid is is going to be an amazing leader because what you do, you know, the number of stages that you win, you know, yeah, your contract increases, you know, your popularity increases. But when he did that, I was like instant lifetime fan. And the only weird part about it was Tade was the one that kind of, you know, gave him his hand. And I was always wondering why Tade raced and Matteo uh, Vanderpool races without gloves. I mean, you only race with gloves for that reason, that when you crash, that's the first thing that you do is you put your hand down. Mm. And when he crashed, that was the first thing that I saw was like, I bet you he wishes he had gloves on now. But then he goes up and tries to shake or does shake Vinigo's hand. And it's got to be all bloody. And I was just thinking... You know, when Jonas takes his hand away and then puts it on his bar tape and then like sees sees Venigo's blood or uh Tade's blood the the rest of the time, you know, God, what what was that feeling like with you know everything going on? But yeah, wow, that was that was amazing. And and I know there's a lot of people out there that say first place is all that counts. But I think the way that you win it is what immortalizes you in this sport. And this Tour de France, you know, he, Venigo, not only earned my respect as, uh, as the overall winner of the Tour de France, but through that gesture and dealing with some hardships, um, this is, this is going to be a fantastic, you know, next couple years. And remind, remember, we have possibly uh, Bernal coming back into this equation. So it's not just going to be the, the Tata Jonas show from here on out. I think we're going to have more guys coming in up to that level. But the sport has changed. There's no doubt about it. There's no going back. Um, Garrett Thomas is another guy we have to give a lot of respect to. He has a different motor. He is, you know, 10 years older than these guys. He's been there, done that. He's been on the podium twice, and this makes the uh, the the hat trick of being on the podium. But how does that older generation the chris frooms the the um the um garrett thomas yenzi do they have a chance or is this just a young man's sport now in terms of grand tour overall victories it's clearly a young man's sport um chris frome had an almost happy end with a fantastic third place on that stage he was superb um i believe it was the stage that um tom pitcock won where Chris Froome finished third. So that was Afterwards, as yeah. good as it ever will get for him. And the same for Garen Thomas. I was so glad to see him. And let's not forget, Garen Thomas covered an entire podium in the Tour de France. He was first, second, and third. I mean, that's much more than I can tell or I can say about myself. So he is a pretty brilliant rider. But next year is a year older. Pogacar gets a year older and stronger. Garen Thomas gets older, and if he's lucky, he stays on the same level at, at his age. And I hate myself for saying that, but as an expert for Eurosport, I have to say it how I see it. And for Garen, I think there was a very nice, superb result, finishing third, podium one more time. But I don't see that happening again next year. There's maybe Jay Hindley is uh, getting there, the, the reigning Giro champ. Like you said, Egan Bernard is going to come back into the fight. Um, maybe Tom Pickup wants to have a run at the GC. So it was great to see the guys. It was great to see Peter Sagan sticking his nose in there. But um, they will struggle to have a lot of good results in the, in the future because the young kids just taking it all. I was just going to ask you a question, both of you, because, you know, you mentioned he's Palmares there, Garen Thomas. He's won the Tour de France. He's a two-time Olympic champion. Uh, he comes, he won Paris-Nice, you know, but he, before the pandemic, which is, you know, where we drew a line for a lot of reasons in, in the cycling calendar, he was building up to do the Giro d'Italia. 
and had that really nasty crash where he went over a water bottle, didn't finish, and then kind of fell very quickly down the pecking order behind Richard Carapaz and Egan Bernal and, and basically had to battle to get a contract with Ineos. Uh, and he he kind of said that this was a tour of revenge for him. You know, he didn't say it explicitly, but this was, I need to prove myself. Dale Brailsford's come out and said that he he felt like he's been proved wrong. Robert Odingworth said he's improved in every aspect of what he's done. This was a better performance than when he won in 2018 in every area. And yet he's finished seven minutes behind, you know, second place, but still finished probably about the same distance in front of fourth. So with that in mind, where does he go? Does he try and win a Giro? Is that a possibility when, you know, these aliens are focusing on the Tour de France? Does he retire and ride off into the sunset knowing that he's achieved everything in his career? Or does he take a look at the classics and say, you know, I won Junior Paris-Roubaix, maybe I'll go back and try that? I I think if I can go first, I think I would see him trying to do the classics one more time. Because there you can still be competitive up to the age of 40 almost. Um, so I think he might yeah, have an eye on maybe Flanders or Roubaix. That's what I would think. Because he did the Tour de France. The Giro is second to the Tour. Like it or not, but that's just the way it is. So he did win the biggest race. He did win the Olympics, world champion. So where else to go? I, I agree with you, Yanzi. Um, G has always been one of my favorite guys. You know, getting him on our podcast earlier in the year was was a special treat. But he's 36 years old. You know, he has a young family. Uh, he's been there, you know, Tour de France champion, won Paris-Nice, Tour de Suisse, Dauphiné, Romandy. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, not to mention what he's done on the track. I just have to question, like, he has nothing else to prove. That you said that Dave, that he felt that he had to prove himself, like that's that's unbelievable. G is one of the hardest men in this sport. And when he doesn't crash, he is very, very good. And, you know, winning the Tour de Suisse this year, I was just like, okay, you know, he's on the upward swing. But there was no way I thought that he'd be able to do what he did. But he played his cards that were dealt. He kind of stayed out of that that boxing match between um, Pogacar and 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 Jonas, and finished on this on the podium of the Tour de France again. And I don't think, in the very least, was he bummed that he couldn't be higher up. I mean, he was on in the photo of the podium of the Tour de France for the third time. Um, I don't. I I wouldn't know what to say to him. I wouldn't know how to motivate him. Uh, to, to keep going. Um, can he win another Grand Tour? Perhaps. Can he be up there in the, in the classics? Perhaps. But once you hit that 36-year-old threshold, you start to see the fear in, in different ways. And I never had the, the Palmars that, that Garrett Thomas has, but I, I wonder what next year will look like. I, I'm super curious. You know he's going to be strong if he wants to be. But I don't know if um, if he needs to do anything any, anything more. Um, but talking about a guy that I've, I've listened to a lot of people. We talked about this before the tour even started. You know, Wout Van Aert, can he win a Grand Tour? Four weeks ago, before the Tour de France started, I was like, hell no. But I'm sorry, Jens, what do you think? I mean, I'm starting to kind of like, man, if he really focused... Perhaps he could win a Grand Tour, and I'm talking a Grand Tour at the Tour de France level. So I'm I'm torn. I was zero percent. Now I'm fifty percent confident that he could do it. What, what do you think about Wout Van Aert? If he changed a couple things, we know he's on a great team. We know they really look at every single detail. Is is that something that is going to challenge him? Because he seems to have to find these ways of challenging himself in order to stay motivated. Do you think that's Something, I mean, obviously on the same team as Jonas is probably not going to work, but um, theoretically, what is what would be the chances that you would give him if he did focus on, on he, GCU? Um, he had a very, very strong Tour de France, but he finished 25th 
Um, let me just quickly check. He finished 25th in the GC. No, not really. 22 in the GC, but a whopping 90 minutes down. 1 hour 35. Place 25. 25 is good. I don't even think I was ever 25 in the tour in the overall. But 135. That's quite a lot of distance to make up. So here's my take. Yes, he can. But he needs to basically stop his season right now. Go on a brutal and painful diet. And loses 3 or 4 or 5 kilos of muscle mass to become better equipped or better ready for the big mountain three days in a row. So then, instead of having 78 kilos, he goes down probably to 72. He will never ever win a classic. He will never ever win a TT or a sprint. He might then, yes, win the tour. He might be podium in the tour. But the cost is he will never beat a Wout van Art we used to know before. Because with 6 kilos less muscle mass, he's a much better climber. And yes, then he can stay with the likes of Wingegord and Pogacar. But he will never ever win a bunch kick and he will never ever win a green jersey again. So where's the balance? Three months of painful diet to transform your body into a climber for maybe winning the tour, which is the biggest goal of all, or go, nah, I'd rather win another 15 stages and another five green jerseys. That's the decision he has to make. Theoretically, <laughs> absolutely, it's possible. He's a hardworking man. He's driven. He's clever. He's smart. He knows how to win. But he is still too massive. He's a big, strong boy. And three days in the Alps, plus two or three days in the Pyrenees, is too much of him. Same with Cancellara back in his days after winning the Tour de Suisse. Basically the same story. I'm not going to say I'm an expert on this because I'm sitting with two ex-professional bike riders, but I can only say as a fan that I've thought about this a lot, not just with with him. You know, it was raised when Sagan was at his peak as well. There was this talk because he was winning on mountain stages, not even at this level. And I thought about it a lot. And ultimately, the conclusion I've come to, particularly in the era we're at now, we've got this incredible group of GC guys. So you've got Egan Bernal, you've got... Uh, Roglic, you've got uh, Vingago, you've got Pogaccia, you know, Martin. There's a whole generation of guys that are at the top level. And then you've got these incredible versatile guys. You've got Wout, you've got Pidcock, you've got Matthew van der Poel, you've got Julian Alaphilippe, right? And then basically, if you bung them all into the same race for three weeks in July, what happens in the spring? You know, what happens at the World Championships? You lose all of that quality. And ultimately, we're blessed at this era that we've got guys that can compete at three different Grand Tours, different guys. You know, you could have you could lose two guys from the GC race and still have a great Grand Tour. You can lose two guys with an injury from the Spring Classics and still have a really competitive spring. Like, you know, there's so much to be excited about as a fan. You know, Fred Wright was someone that was ripping it up on the on the every breakaway. Matteo Jorgensen, you know, that what a brilliant time to be a fan. And Wout is still going to be competitive doing mental things like attacking, you know, in the yellow jersey on day four of the Tour de France. Why risk it? You know, we saw what happened when Alaphilippe got down and, and raced. And yeah, he was still competitive on short stages, but... Ultimately, when he gets to the high mountains, he can't compete with those guys. So I would rather they don't take the risk and we just get the very best of them being their very best. I agree 100%. I would rather see the Wout that we saw this year instead of skinny Wout and having one bad day and then wasting the whole season. But yeah, I mean, bottom line, to put a pin in this, 10 teams came away with a stage win. That means that 12 are, are going home without uh anything and we had 15 different stage winners right so we had multiple wins by van Aert, uh by tade by venigo and and jesper philipsen i want to touch before because i definitely want to talk about the women's race because thank goodness for that we have another week of 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 great racing on tv but on stage four when wout did attack in the yellow jersey like you said jesper philipsen came across the line with his hand in the air, very, very strong sprint. 
And that must have been very, very tough for him. Every sprint after that, he you could see that he was pinging. Like if it was a bonus sprint, he was winning it. He won stage 15. He won the final stage on the Champs-Élysées. Um, what an amazing race for him. You know, having that happen in stage four, seeing Matteo Vanderpool pull out, lose some, some other teammates here and there, um, and, and then to come out and win two stages in the final week, another young sprinter coming up. I mean, you're, you're right, Mark. We, we are absolutely blessed. And um, I think sprinters should stay sprinters. GC guys should stay GC guys. Wout is on, you know, a totally different wavelength, right? He can pretty much do anything. But we are absolutely blessed. And, you know, we had some guys that didn't even do the Tour de France. You know, um, Julian Alaphilippe he would have lit it up. You know, he would have been in there for a stage win. Uh, Egon Bernal, I mean, the list, uh, Jai Henley, you know, the list goes on and on. So I think we're definitely going to get spoiled here. I got another name we haven't mentioned yet. Remco Evenepoel. He wants to go at the Tour next oh. year. Plus, um, um, Patrick Lefebvre, he got a new sponsor of a Slotto and apparently they put in a good big check and they want some overall aspirations from the team. They said, yeah, we love the classics, but we also want to be on a podium in the Tour de France. So we might see the the team, the Koenig or Quickstep Lotto, how they will be called next year. We might then uh, maybe get one or two riders to help even a pool at his quest for the yellow jersey. So there's another big <laughs> name and another young kid. And if I can go, like, talking about the great times of cycling, if I can have a daring view into the nearer future. Uh, I believe in four weeks from now, we got the mount uh, Mountain Bike World Championships. It is not completely stupid to say that Tom Pitcock might be a favorite for that one. And after that, another four weeks down the road, we got the World Championships Road Racing. And again, it wouldn't be completely stupid to say Tom Pitcock might be amongst the favorites for that race as well. So I can't wait for the season to move on. Yeah. I was just going to say, before we, before we move on to the Tour de France Femme, the white jersey is it's almost redundant, isn't it now? We've got this golden generation of amazing young riders. Um, Jonas has just escaped the white jersey classification. But, you know, he was in white last year. Tade's won it <laughs> two years in a row, three years in a row. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's not really a test of some rookie that's just come in. So there's been lots of suggestions for what you can replace it with. Should there be a classification, a grey jersey for over 35 riders? Like, you know, Geraint Thomas, would you like that? Should we bring back a combination jersey so someone like Wout can wear a different jersey on the podium? He nearly won the mountain classification as well. Or do you go something completely different and bring in like a an inter-Giro, an inter-Tour style uh, jersey that you can win? What do you think? Uh, I believe, oh, you go first, Bobby. I would love to see the combination jersey come back because when I got into cycling, uh, that was a thing. And I remember watching Greg LeMond and Bernard Hinault go up Alpe d'Huez um, you know, that jersey was on um, Bernard Hinault's shoulders, I believe, at that time. And it was like the green, the polka dot, um, the yellow, like combo. So I would rather see see that jersey rather than a gray jersey, like you said, of, of over 35. That that would be a little bit cooler. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of the Intergiro jersey that they used to have in the in the Tour of Italy. Uh, I never understood that. Like it was kind of like a different classification, like halfway through the stage. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Yenzi? What would you like to see? Um, as a German now, watching Simon Geschke fighting for that points jersey so hard every day for every single point, and then losing it so close on a like second to last uh, or last mountains, last proper mountain stage. And like you said, Bobby, we got 15 stage winners. And um, let me quickly check. Four riders won 10 stages. So four riders won almost half of all the stages. 
We need a jersey for normal riders. Somebody that you and me could actually realistically <laughs> go for. I mean, going for green? Are you stupid? Vote for an artist in the race. Going for yellow? Are you stupid? He got Wingelgaard and Pogaccia in the race. So, mountain jersey, the last three years, the yellow jersey also won as a byproduct, as a bonus, unwanted bonus. They won the mountain jersey. This year, Wingegaard, the last two years, Tadej Pogaccia. So for a normal bike rider, like an everyday Joe, a hardworking guy that gives his soul to cycling, his soul to racing, his soul to the team, we need, I don't know what and how, but we need a jersey that a normal person can achieve where realistically you go, okay, I'm not as strong as the superstars at the gods of cycling, but that jersey, I can go for this one. I think we need something for the normal people. Oh geez, that's almost like a participation medal for 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 finishing. I I don't know about that. I mean, the Tour de France is the pinnacle of our sport, and um, I'm sure the UCI, um, the Tour de France, you know, the Grand Tours will will look at this because. Do you remember back in the day when, um, if somebody didn't, if like, uh, I don't remember the last time it was pre-pandemic for sure that even if a guy finished second in a classification, that he would be on the podium uh, in Paris because they needed to represent that jersey in, in person. So they'd have all four jerseys up there together. And um, I always felt bad for that guy. Like, you know, he knows he didn't win it, but he's on the podium in Paris. He's in the photo. Like, I kind of like the way they do it now. Like, you won that classification. You're going to put on that jersey, not second place, just to have all the jerseys up there. So, yeah. Debate, debate, debate. But um, again, to put a pin in it, what a great, another great Tour de France. And talking about a great Tour de France, we have the Tour de France Femme presented by Zwift um, started a couple days ago. And so far, it's been amazing. I mean, they're obviously doing it a little bit backwards. They're, they started in Paris and they're going to finish on uh, Planche de Super Belfi. Um, we're, we're through a couple stages here. The, the racing has been hot. The only thing I can think of is that first week in the Tour de France for the men, you, you, you know, there's a lot of crashes happen, happening. And they're happening again uh, with the women. Um, the, I cannot imagine, because this is by far the biggest event in women's cycling in a very, very long time, I cannot imagine the pressure that these young ladies are and women are are having to deal with. You know, the pressure of the Tour de France, the the small roads, the the difficult parkour, the wind, the bigger peloton. Um, this this is going to be interesting. I mean, the cream is definitely going to rise to the top. But what I don't like seeing, which we also see in the men, is some of the favorites getting getting ousted in the first couple stages due to crashes. But um, I mean, this is the future of cycling. And I would love to see one day that somehow they run the races um, at the same time. Uh, you know, they used to do that back in the day. I don't really remember the, 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 um, the, the exact way they did it. But um, man, what, what, what a great event. And these women like Chris... Uh, Kristen Faulkner, who came on in between the Girodona and the Tour de France Femme, to to walk into the sport and have this opportunity, um, I just can't wait. I, I mean, I'm glued to the TV, so this will be what five weeks running that I've been watching the the Tour de France uh, in in the mornings. But um, it, it's it's going to be a fantastic race. The, these women deserve this sort of notoriety and 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 live streaming on on the biggest networks and so far they've been racing fantastically and you know great stage wins so far uh first stage lorena webb second stage marion voss um can't wait to see tomorrow i kind of dated our podcast by saying the, <laughs> the the stages that we've watched already but yeah it's it's gonna be interesting and i just cannot wait to watch that stage eight when they they finish up planche de belfi it's gonna it's gonna be interesting I was just going to say from from a fan's perspective, I heard the, the greatest piece of advice about this was, you know, we haven't had a women's tour de France. We haven't had a women's race for a long time. 
And the reason is because it doesn't get televised. You know, Eurosport GCN, they've got a big base. That's why they're able to do it. But it's use it or lose it. So if you're enjoying it, just remember to tell people you're watching it, tweet about it, talk about it, share it, because, you know, the chances of us getting a big three-week race and getting these girls on full-time, sorry, getting these women on full-time contracts where, you know, they don't have to do another job would be amazing for the sport. And it's it's only what they deserve. They're like doing exactly the same as what the guys are doing, putting themselves at risk. And it's been great racing. Yep, couldn't agree more, my friends. Well said. And yep, I will be watching it, not commentating anymore. Do we have have other experts for that on German Eurosport? But I will watch it. And good to see that Mariano Voss is still there, carrying the flag. <laughs> It's lovely. Grey jersey holder. Yes. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, guys... Really appreciate your time. Yenzi, you know, coming off the, the Tour de France, you deserve a, a little bit of vacation. I know um, know it's been a, a, a tough couple of weeks, you know, being away from the family and whatnot. So, yeah, thanks for listening to this spe special Tour de France, both men and women's edition rundown. Thank you for listening to Bobby and Jens, and we'll see you next time. Well, that's all our time for this week. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Value News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mosser. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.